Continuing once again this morning in our series in Amos, looking at chapter 4, verses 12 through 13. I told Mark last week that chapter 4 could turn into four or five sermons, and I don't think the Lord is going to allow me to do that, but it's going to at least be two. And so we'll continue this morning. And just real quick to kind of get everybody's mind back on the same page after a, a great week. Uh, with our kids in, in sharing the gospel during vacation Bible school, man, we were particularly blessed. I know everybody's tired, um, but uh, let's uh, take a moment to, to focus up here and um, turn our attention to the word of the Lord. The reality is when you look to the book of Amos that the kingdom of Israel finds themselves in the position they're in, not by happenstance, but instead, because as goes the king, so goes the kingdom. And centuries before, under the reign of the first king of northern Israel, Jeroboam I, he committed a grave atrocity before the Lord of the heaven and the earth. It was not simply demonic paganism that he dove off into, but instead fearing the worship of the one true God in Jerusalem would ultimately lead the heart of the people of Israel back to the house of David and thereby undermine his political aspirations. Jeroboam refashioned God in the manner that he thought he needed him to be. And in doing so, blasphemed it says in 1 Kings chapter 12 that the king took counsel and he made two calves of gold and he said to the people, you've gone up to Jerusalem long enough. Behold your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And having removed the immutable standard of righteousness from the midst of the people, they fell into the vilest of depravity into the madness of believing their own deceitful hearts above the truth that was set before them. Centuries later, during the reign of Jeroboam II, his namesake, two years before the earthquake, Amos, a shepherd from Tekoa, did not hear the word of the Lord. He saw it. For it says in Amos chapter 1 verse 2 that the Lord roars from Zion and utters his voice from Jerusalem. The pastures of the shepherds mourn and the top of Carmel withers. When the Lord himself roars forth from Zion, his people come trembling. But the wicked hardened their hearts. And in such roaring, a very partial God shows no partiality. We see him roar at the Syrians, at the Philistines, at the Tyrrhenians and the Edomites, at the Ammonites and the Moabites, even at Judah herself. But he is particularly focused in the book of Amos upon the northern kingdom of Israel, for they are a particular people to him. They are set apart. The psalmist writes in Psalm 147 that he declares his word to Jacob. His statutes and rules to Israel. He has not dealt thus with any other nation. They don't know his rules. Praise the Lord. When the Lord has a people that is particularly set apart to him, then his eye is turned particularly towards them. For with much blessing comes much responsibility. And there is an anger that comes out of love that is stronger than any anger that springs forth from hatred. 
An anger that is able to accomplish the very loving thing which sent it. For he says to Israel in Amos chapter 3 verse 2, You only have I known of all the families of the earth, and therefore I will punish you for all your iniquities. And so, in Amos chapter 4, verse 1 through 2, the Lord says, listen to this word. Listen to this word, you cows. Hear this word, you cows of Bashan, who are on the mountain of Samaria, who oppress the poor, who crush the needy, who say to your husbands, bring that we may drink. The Lord God has sworn by his holiness that behold, the days are coming upon you when they shall take you away with hooks, even the last of you with fish hooks. Hear this word, O you cows. It's definitely very straightforward. prophet sees a word from the Lord. He sees the Lord roaring forth from Zion and the word that comes forth is hear this word, O you cows of Bashan. Now that is not what we would rate today as being a seeker friendly statement. And you have to ask yourself, why so insulting? Because guys, I don't know if you realize it or not, but this is not a cultural thing. It doesn't matter if you're from the east. It doesn't matter if you're from the west. It doesn't matter if you're from the 20th century B.C. or if you're from the 7th century A.D. or flip those. doesn't matter if you're from the 20th century A.D. or from the 7th century B.C. When you get called a cow, it is insulting. Why so insulting? Because Bashan is more than a place, it's more than geography, it's more than a pasture full of cattle, it's more than a place where sheep are raised. There is a spiritual reality that is attached to it. We looked specifically at it last week. It was the kingdom of Og, the last of the Rephaim. An evil king who slept on a bed that was Thirteen and a half foot long, made of solid iron. Lawlessness on display. As demonic of a partnership as can possibly be. It was this spiritual reality and not just the geography of the place that caused David to loathe it so. And what David loathed, the man after God's own heart, what he despised, the generations of Israel would lust for. The strong, well-appointed bulls of Bashan, they lusted after them so much so that they were willing to become their heifers, and in doing so, they produced two calves of gold and said, This, O Israel, is thy Elohim that led you out of Egypt. But because of the fact that of all the people on the face of the earth, he knew them. Therefore, they would meet him. 
Amos chapter 4, verses 12 through 13. Therefore, thus I will do to you, O Israel, because I will do this to you. Prepare to meet your God, O Israel. For behold, he who forms the mountains and creates the wind and declares to a man what is his thought, who makes the morning darkness and treads on the heights of the earth, the Lord, Yahweh, the God of hosts, is his name. The Lord says, because you are different and the manner in which you are different is that I knew you intimately when I didn't know any of the other peoples of the earth in the way that I knew you because of that, not in spite of it, but because of it, there is an anger that springs forth out of love that's stronger than any anger that comes forth from hatred because I love you, you're going to meet me face to face. Behold, Prepare to meet your Lord, you cows. Prepare to meet Yahweh, the Elohim of hosts, the Lord of armies, the God of war. Prepare to meet your God. Not because he doesn't know you, but because he does. Because he does. Friends, let me tell you, Scripture is clear. Every single human being, everyone that our kids learned about in Vacation Bible School this week that God created out of nothing, that according to John chapter 1, that the life that was solely in him came forth from him and shone in the darkness so that you exist. So that I exist, so that we can think about our own mortality, so that we can consider our own unrighteousness in the light of a holy God and praise Him for the salvation that He provides. Every single one that He brought forth out of nothing, every single one that He formed their bodies from the dust of Eden and breathed His own life into them. Every single one will meet him face to face. It's just that they won't all meet him on the same terms. All will give an account. I mean, we look at the statement that is made here in Amos chapter 4, and it seems so bold and so audacious. It seems so over the top. It's a great sermon title. Man, that's, a, that's an easy one to slap on the front of the bulletin, right? Prepare to meet your God, Amos 4, 12-13. It shouldn't be audacious. It is the absolute common experience of every single human that has ever and will ever exist. The reason it's so audacious is because it is such a fearful thing, we would prefer to set it in the back of our minds than to deal with it head on. All will give an account. Jesus said it like this, and it's all through Scripture. I mean, we could go anywhere. We could, we could go to Genesis. We could go to Revelation. We could go anywhere in between. But Jesus said it like this in Matthew chapter 12. In Matthew chapter 12, verse 33. And I, I don't know if you've noticed, the references have got Matthew heavy lately. I'll just Well, it's a small group this morning. We'll just let the cat out of the bag a little bit. It's because that's what we're prepping to go to when we finish with Amos. And so when it's on your mind, 
That's what you do. Jesus says it like this in Matthew chapter 12 in verse 33. Either make the tree good and its fruit good. I love that statement. Make it this way. Either make the tree good and its fruit good or make the tree bad and its fruit bad for the tree is known by its fruit. You brood of vipers. How can you speak good when you are evil? For out of the abundance of the heart the mouth speaks. The good person out of the good treasure brings forth good. And the evil person out of his evil treasure brings forth evil. I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give an account for every careless word they speak. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned." Now, guys, that is a point-blank statement that covers both the positive and the negative aspects of the logic by which it is made. You will give an account for every word. Whether intentional or careless, by it, you will either be justified or condemned. Paul says to the Romans in chapter 14, you guys remember from just a few months back, we will all stand before the judgment seat of God, for it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, and every tongue shall confess to God. So then each one of us will give an account of himself to God. Do you know what that looks like? It looks like Job chapter 38 through 40. Where the Lord says, I've been listening to you run your mouth, Job, for years. And what you're going to do now is quit talking and you're going to answer me. David's son, Solomon, said it this way in Ecclesiastes chapter 12. The end of the matter. Man, you've got to love Solomon. He knows how to get right to the point. <laughs> Here it is. This is the end of the matter. The end of the matter. All has been heard. Fear God and keep His commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment and with every secret thing, whether in good or in evil. Such is the plight. Such is the fate of the sons and the daughters of Adam. We will stand and we will give an account. We will answer, not generally speaking for the totality of our existence, but down to the very minutia of what was said intentionally, what was said unintentionally. It goes further than that. Even beyond that which was said and simply to that which was thought and that which was felt. Now, there's a, there's a fearful thought, friends, is the Lord is going to hold me to account for the things that I feel. Looks like this in Revelation chapter 20. Everybody's going to stand before him. What's different is going to be the terms. In Revelation chapter 20, verses 11 through 15, John records this. And then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it and from his presence earth and sky fled away and no place was found for them. 
And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and the books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books, according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them, and they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. And then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Here you have a group of people that are going through the very thing that Christ himself promised that they would go through, that they are being held to account for every word they have ever spoken. They're being judged in this instance in Revelation chapter 20, not according to what Christ did on their behalf, but instead they're being judged according to what they have done. I can think, if I can make personal testimony, this is, this is not a statement that is, is based on high doctrine. Personal testimony. I can think of nothing more terrifying to me than to be judged based on what I've done. Can you? I don't even know the darkness of my own heart. Like we said, man, Amos makes a bold title, Prepare to Meet Your God. The only reason it's so bold is because we take the common experience of all mankind and we push it back to the background because we don't want to think about it. Because when we start thinking about this stuff and we start looking at who we really are apart from Christ, it is a terror to think of what it'll be like to be stripped naked standing before a white throne from which earth and sky fleet away. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. And from his presence, earth and sky fled away and no place was found for them. It is the definition of naked. Everybody's had that dream. Uh, Everybody had that dream in, in grade school. Naked in class. Nobody knows it but you. Isn't it awkward? Isn't it weird? This is naked before the assembly of all sentient beings in existence. And you're not the only one that knows it. Everybody knows it. The sky. Have you, have, you, have you ever been in a situation where something was so awkward that you were embarrassed on behalf of someone else? Right? Okay. And, and what do you want to do? You want to go. Right? Like, I'm, I'm out, man. <laughs> you know, this is your deal and that's your problem and all that stuff and you probably deserve it. But, I, yeah, I don't even want to have to because I feel awkward just watching you go through it. Okay. It's so bad the sky leaves. Nope. You understand that here you have the assembly of the firstborn in view of the judgment of those who are unknown by God. You're going to have 
you're, you're literally going to have Adolf Hitler standing there giving an account before every single Jew that he sent to a gas chamber. For every thought and inclination of his heart that led him to that decision, you're going to have Judas himself standing there giving an account to Jesus Christ for why he sold him out for 30 pieces of silver. Judas was a cheap buy, man. It wasn't even gold. Earth and sky flee away. The author of Hebrews said it this way in chapter 4, For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of the soul and the spirit of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. No creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. Friends, those kind of scriptures, if you really consider them, should cause us to take a long look in the mirror. It's not about just what you say. Jesus says you will give an account for what you say. Behold, prepare to meet your God. But it's not just what you say. It's also what you think and what you feel. Matthew chapter 5, verse 21, You have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. Or as Jesus will say in Matthew chapter 5, you have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. When we consider ourselves, we often consider ourselves to be more righteous than our neighbors. Friends, the reality is, is by the standard that Jesus gives, there's not a single person of age in this room that is not a murderer and adulterer. Now, guys, those are the kind of standards that I, I want to hold myself to. By golly, I may do this, but I'm not an adulterer. <laughs> yeah, you are. You well, man, that's God's standards. Yeah, and he's the one that's going to judge. You know, I may, be a, I may be a lot of things, but I'm not a murderer. Yeah, you are. And, and I'm not talking to you. I'm talking to me. Like this is what I, this is what I mean. This is the kind of stuff that'll that, that'll that'll sober you up quick. Like you look in the mirror and go, by Christ's standard, I am guilty. And specifically because he knows me, I will see him face to face. See, man, that, that makes you feel guilty. Yes, guilt is good. We, we, we've developed this theology that says guilt is bad. Friends, guilt is good if it is well applied. Guilt is good when you are guilty and that guilt leads to fear and that fear leads to repentance that is associated with salvation. Proverbs chapter 9, verse 10, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. Friends, when you are guilty and you're going to stand before a holy God and He says, prepare to meet me, then by golly, there needs to be some guilt. Because if there's not guilt, there won't be any repentance. And if there's no repentance, there won't be any salvation. 
Man, the knowledge of the Lord and who He is creates fear in His people. You know, you ask yourself, why in the world do we see in Revelation chapter 20 the great white throne recorded? I mean, after all, if this book is written to reveal Jesus Christ to His people, and His people have already been resurrected, those that are alive have already been caught up to meet Him in the air, there's been a thousand years of Jesus Christ Himself reigning on high in Jerusalem. His people are as saved as saved can be. They are fully glorified. Man, this is, this is Romans chapter 8 and 9 kind of stuff. I mean, this is the whole bit, man. Those whom He foreknew, He also predestined. And those whom He predestined, He called. And those whom He called, He also justified in order that He might be the firstborn among many brothers. There's your sanctification. And those whom He justified, He also glorified. It is full. It is complete. It is finished. It is done. They are as saved as saved can be. Why does it record what He's doing to the damned? And the answer is, is because it produces fear in the heart of men, a fear that is the very beginning of wisdom. A fear that makes you go, whoa, whoa. I don't want none of that. Perhaps there's something different. Every single human being is going to meet their God. Everyone will give an account for what was done in the flesh. But some will meet him in a way that is particular, unique, and holy out of all of the rest. Some will meet him in grace, mercy. Mercy comes through the craziest of means. As a matter of fact, Gentiles, mercy has come to you and me through the means of fat cows. Turn to Deuteronomy chapter 32. And we touched on this last week as we were considering the kind of the, the gravity and the spiritual reality of this concept of Bashan, more than just a pasture. In Deuteronomy chapter 32, in the Song of Moses, in verses 8 through 9, Moses writes that when the Most High gave to the nations their inheritance, when he divided mankind, he fixed the borders of the people according to the number of the sons of God. But the Lord's portion is his people. Jacob, his allotted heritage. And so here is a very particular God doing some very particular things with a very particular people. And he has set mankind upon the earth and he's placed them in their allotted heritage. But he has this particular people. This particular people in Jacob through which all the earth will be blessed and he has set them apart as his allotted heritage but those people are stiff-necked people they're rebellious people there are people that murder and commit adultery in their heart and will answer for every single careless word they have ever spoken it speaks of their rebellion in verse 13 when it says that 
He made him, that being Jacob, to ride on the high places of the land, and he ate the produce of the field, and he suckled him with honey out of the rock and the oil out of the flinty rock, curds from the herd and milk from the flock with fat lambs, rams of Bashan and goats with the very finest of the wheat, and you drank foaming wine made from the blood of the grape. But Jeshurun, Jacob, grew fat, and he kicked He grew fat, stout, and sleek, and then he forsook the God who made him and scoffed at the rock of his salvation. They stirred him to jealousy with strange gods, with abominations. They provoked him to anger. They sacrificed to demons that were no gods, to gods that they had never known, to new gods that had come recently whom our fathers had never dreaded. You were unmindful of the rock that bore you, and you forgot the God who gave you birth. And yet, in the midst of their rebellion, not even in spite of their rebellion, but the Lord using their rebellion as means by which to bring his mercy and grace to the whole world. In the midst of their rebellion is grace. Moses doesn't stop here. He sets the stage. He says, okay, the Lord had something he was doing. He picked this people and he picked them particularly. They were different than everybody else. He set them apart. He gave them all of the blessings that they could ever possibly want. And they proved that that was not sufficient for them. They turned from the blessings of the Lord instead and, and, and they pressed into rebellion. They grew fat. They grew sleek. They, they kicked. They, 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 they would not acknowledge the rock from which they were supplied. The Lord saw it and spurned them because of the provocation of his sons and daughters. And he said, I will hide my face from them. I will see what their end will be, for they are a perverse generation, children in whom is no faithfulness. They have made me jealous with what is no God. They have provoked me to anger with their idols, so I will make them jealous with those who are no people. You need to perk your ears up right here because he's talking about you. They have made me jealous with what is no God. They have provoked me to anger with their idols, so I will make them jealous with those who are no people. I will provoke them to anger with a foolish nation, for a fire is kindled by my anger, and it burns to the depths of Sheol, devours the earth and its increase, and sets on fire the foundations of the mountains, because there is an anger that comes out of love that is more powerful than any anger that ever came out of hatred, and it is capable of achieving the ends on which it is founded. It is capable of bringing the beloved to himself. It's why Paul quotes it in Romans chapter 10. Romans chapter 10, verses 11 through 21. For the scripture says... Everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. 
There is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Praise the Lord we quote that scripture. It's very unfortunate that we don't tie it back to the Old Testament reality from which the promise came. How then will they call on him whom they've not believed? And how are they to believe in him whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? So faith comes through hearing, and hearing through the word of Christ. But I ask, have they not heard? Indeed they have, for their voice has gone out into all the earth, and their words into the ends of the world. But I ask, did Israel not understand? First Moses says, I will make you jealous of those who are not a nation. With a foolish nation, I will make you angry. Then Isaiah is so bold as to say, I've been found by those who did not seek me. I've shown myself to those who did not ask for me. But of Israel, he says all day long, I've held out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. The reality is, the reality is, by the very means of them rejecting The good things of God that came to them, it has come to you and I. The reality is, because they were doing the things that Amos described, you and I find ourselves watching from the gallery of the white throne instead of standing before it. Make no mistake, every single man, woman, and child will stand and give an account for what they have done in the flesh. What is different is the terms on which they will give it. Because some will be condemned and some will be justified. Some will be lost and some will be saved as it is written in Amos chapter 3 verse 12. Thus says the Lord as the shepherd rescues from the mouth of the lion two legs or a piece of the ear. So shall the people of Israel be who dwell in Samaria and be rescued with the corner of a couch and the part of a bed. For us it doesn't look like a white throne. For us, it looks like the judgment seat of Jesus Christ. For us, it looks like the judgment of the very one who died in order to save us. Paul said it this way in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 9 through 15. For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building. And according to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation and someone else is building on it. Let each one take care how he builds upon it. For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, or straw, 
Each one's work will become manifest. For the day will disclose it because it will be revealed by fire and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. Every single son and daughter of Adam will stand before their God and give an account of what they have done. Some will stand before a white throne. And they will be judged according to their own works. And some will stand before Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God. And they will be judged according to what He has done. The foundation that is Him and that out of him has produced in them things not of wood and hay and stubble, but of gold and silver and precious stones. Let me tell you something, man. And, and look, you need to be happy about this. You're going to burn. Praise God. Let me tell you something. The part of me, the part of you that was not produced out of that foundation that he laid is not worthy of keeping. Man, you don't want... Now, now look, I, I know that, it, that in the confines of our flesh in the moment that we are weak, but the reality is when staring at eternity, you don't want to carry this stuff with you. Amen? The older I get, the more I see. Buddy, there is stuff about me that I do not want to carry into heaven. Man, there is stuff about me that I regret. I compare it to the glory of God in Jesus Christ, and it causes me to be ashamed. Do you want to carry that? Do you want to walk apart from time with real shame and real regret? I don't. Friends, there is nothing in us that is worthy of keeping that did not come from Him. Man, let it burn. Let it burn. Look, you're going to, you, man, prepare to meet your God. I, I'm going to do it. You're going to do it. And hey, man, it's going to be one of them hard swallow kind of deals. I mean, we, we, you're not going to be able to talk yourself past it. But here's what we know. What we know is you will either stand before a white throne and the terror of his holiness for which you will never live up. Or you will stand before a fountain filled with blood. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Either way, there's going to be fire. And so I would point you once again this morning back to Ezekiel chapter 20. 
Because listen, guys, here's how salvation comes, right? This is, you know, this is when we're in Romans 9. You know, Paul, Paul when, he, when he's talking about the, the providence of God in salvation and he's laying out how the promise came to men and he knows that the flesh of men is going to despise the way that God did it and they're going to accuse God. They're going to try to call him on the carpet and, and he does all the rhetorical questions. You know, you're going to say this, you're going to say this, you're going to say this. And at the end of the day, he just says, basically, he says, listen, shut up because this is the way the promise came. So do you want it or not? Do you want it on his terms? Because this is how it's going to be. You're not going to be able to church it up. You're not going to be able to go Jeroboam the first and say, well, you know, we need him to kind of be this way. It's like, this is how it came. Part you're comfortable with, part you're uncomfortable with. Okay, so here it is in Ezekiel. Same kind of thing. As I live, declares the Lord God, surely with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm and with wrath poured out, I will be king over you. Man, how is Jesus going to be king over him? <laughs> He's going to be king over him when he takes his own might and his own arm and applies it in wrath in order that he might be king over those who would otherwise rebel. I will bring you out from the peoples and gather you out of the countries where you were scattered with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm and with wrath poured out. And I will bring you into the wilderness of the peoples and there I will enter into judgment with you face to face. As I entered into judgment with your fathers in the wilderness of the land of Egypt, so I will enter into judgment with you, declares the Lord God, and I will make you pass under the rod, and I will bring you into the bond of the covenant. So here's the part we like. I'll be king over you, and I'll bring you into the bond of the covenant. Here's the part we don't like. The way that I'm going to accomplish that is the rod of my wrath that I bring you under to get you there. Huh. Can we have the bond of the covenant without having the rod of wrath? I suppose that God could do it however he wants, but what we know is that he chooses the way that is always the best. And so if you want all things to work together for good, then apparently no. Nope, you can't. <laughs> you want the bond of the covenant? You want him to be king over you? This is the way it's coming. And so here's the question. And this is what it really boils down to. So, man, here's the gospel. Okay? Here it is. And here is, here, here is Romans chapter 10. And those that are going forth preaching, telling you to come to it. Do you trust him? Because, man, one way or the other, you're going to burn. One way or the other. One way or the other, man. It, it can be a white throne and an eternal fire that is never quenched, or it can be the loving kindness of Jesus Christ that removes all of the junk that you wouldn't want to enter into eternity with anyway. Now, look, that's spooky. Because here's the deal, guys. No matter how much introspection we do, there is going to be stuff in his perfect judgment that he deems to fall short that we're going to think is precious. 
So there's going to be stuff about me that, like, at the end of the day, when I really, like, look hard and go, oh, yeah, all that stuff's the terrible stuff that I'm ashamed of, and, man, I want that to go away, and I sure don't want to carry that weight into glory with me. Like, please, Lord, burn that up. But here's some stuff over here, and, and, and this right here is actually really good, and he's going to look at it and go, no, it's not. That's burning too because that's not me in you. Man, I'm going to have my little binkies that I thought was pretty good stuff, and he's going to go, nope, burn it. Do you trust him? This is the gospel, man. This, this is the question that is laid before men. The question is not, do you want to go to heaven or do you want to go to hell? That's not the question. It, it, the question is not, do you want to be on this list or that list? The question is not, what boxes do I need to check? What things do I need to do? That is not the question. That's not the gospel. The gospel is this. Do you trust him to be faithful to do what is actually good? And if you do, come and die that you may live. This is why you have to trust him because this is what he is asking. This is what he is asking. Come and die that you may live. And I look out today and look at a whole bunch of people that have come to the Lord and died so that they may live. Maybe there's somebody here today that needs to die so that they can live. That's between you and the Lord. But here's what I know. Whether we're telling it to 59 kids at Vacation Bible School or whether we're telling it to the cashier or the cart guy that's stacking up carts in the parking lot at Walmart, the message is always the same. And it is not. Guys, no wonder the world looks at the church. You know, if the world looked at the church with the kind of disdain that we see in the New Testament, at least that would be fitting. I think a lot of times today the world looks at the church as just being kind of silly and goofy, and it's because we're not, we're not presenting a gospel so often that's anything less than silly and goofy. And so here it is, man. Look, it, do you trust him? Do you trust him who is a consuming fire to consume you and have it be for your good? Let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. For our God is a consuming fire. Fred, you're going to see him. Prepare to meet your God. You're going to see him. And in that day, you won't be offended if he says, hey, you cows. Instead, what you're going to be doing is going, oh, my God, I'm a cow. <laughs> right? You're going to meet him on his terms. Man, he is the God of war. He said so. He's also the God of grace. Also the God of grace. Trust him. Let's pray. Father, we love you. Lord, we consider your word. And indeed, it is a fearful thing 
And Lord, as we've seen this week, we are fearfully and wonderfully made. Lord, and, and your gospel is, is fearful and wonderful. And so, Lord, we pray that today, um, Lord, we pray for the very thing that your word says that, that your spirit comes for. Lord, we pray for conviction. Lord, we pray for conviction of, of our own unrighteousness. We pray for conviction of your righteousness. Lord, in conviction that the ruler of this world is judged and there is salvation in you and in no one else and that there is no other name under heaven given by which men must be saved than by the name of Jesus Christ. Lord, we pray that you would save your own. Lord, we pray that you would sanctify your people and in doing so you would glorify yourself. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.